I resent the immediate reaction by members of the public that simply by making an accusation without having facts to support that accusation other than the mere allegation of impropriety that people jump on the bandwagon and say it must be true. Uh, I think that in a number of cases, uh, a number of very public cases, uh, it's been demonstrated that people who uh, make uh, accusations simply are not being truthful. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. In this episode of Of Counsel, we are joined by legendary criminal defense lawyer Brian Greenspan. Over the past 45 years, Brian has defined himself as one of Canada's best. Repeatedly ranked as among the country's most influential lawyers, he has represented celebrities, sports stars, and entertainers who happen upon the criminal justice system. Past clients include Naomi Campbell, Justin Bieber, Alan Eagleson, Iron Gottlieb, and Omar Kadar, to name only a few. Brian is not only an effective and passionate litigator, but a true gentleman who cares deeply about his clients, the law, and social justice. Join us as he discusses his lengthy career in criminal law, the lessons he has for lawyers following in his footsteps, and the role of criminal defense counsel on this episode of Of Counsel. Today's a very special episode um, for me personally, but I'm sure for all of our, all of our listeners because um, we're with one of Canada's best-known litigators of all time, Brian Greenspan. And before we start, Mr. Greenspan, I want to tell you a story of myself, how I got into criminal law. Uh, I was sitting down and uh, awaiting uh, a lawyer to come in for my summer student position. And the receptionist said, you know what, just have a seat in uh, in Mr. Richardson's office, Bob Richardson. And um, the student at the time, my friend Adam Schultz, was supposed to meet me that day. Well, he forgot. So what happened is I ended up reading um, your brother's book <laughs> from beginning to end and all the stories between the two of you growing up in Niagara Falls um, and just the heyday of criminal litigation and all the stories that came from that. And although Adam never showed up that day, <laughs> uh, what happened was I was forever changed. And I knew that reading about the Greenspans is how I was going to get into criminal law, and I just couldn't do anything since. And that's where my direction has been. That's very generous and very flattering. And uh, I, I hope that some of the, the stories were not only instructive, but at least entertaining. Absolutely. And I'm sure they're, uh, I'm sure to many of our criminal defense lawyers listening to this podcast, they have similar stories about how you and your brother have inspired them. So my question to you is, 
Tell us how you got involved in criminal law. Is this something you knew from a young age, or is this something that you fell into? Well, it's uh, one needn't have taken even Psychology 101 to uh, see the background of both my brother's interest in criminal law, my interest in criminal law, and our sister, who is uh, certainly the brightest of the three of us and the academic amongst the three, the one thing our sister and I always agreed was that we were intellectually in reverse order of age so that Eddie was uh, the least accomplished uh, in our family uh, and Roseanne certainly the most accomplished. She's a criminologist and the executive director of the Center for Law and Society at Berkeley. Uh, our interest in criminal law really traces to our, our late father. Um, our father came to Canada in 1915 uh, and uh, by 19, uh, and he was, I'm sorry, he was born in 1915, came to Canada in 1928 at the age of 13. Um, uh, by 1939, uh, he had a BA in law from the University of Toronto and had started first year uh, law at U of T, at, U of T, at Osgoode, uh, as it then was. And uh, he, um, he only had one year of law, the war came, he was in a family business, was in the army briefly, then into the family business, and never fulfilled his ambition of uh, finishing law school. Uh, so that very shortly thereafter, uh, he, he married our, our mother, and he was born in 1944, I was born in 47, and my sister in 50. Uh, and then in 1957, when he was only 42, he had a, a heart attack on March 31st of 1957, uh, and all of a sudden a, a business evaporated, uh, and we went from being a reasonably affluent family in a small town uh, to my mother returning to the work she knew, and she became a secretary for the Niagara Falls Board of Education. So how old were you at the time? I, I was 10. Eddie was, it was just after Eddie's bar mitzvah. It was two weeks after Eddie's bar mitzvah. My sister was six. Uh, and uh, that was, was a traumatic event, but it was also led to being quite an inspirational event because the library in our family home was filled with Clarence Darrow, uh, filled with uh, uh, the greats of American justice, Felix Frankfurter, uh, the works of Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, and from a very early age, uh, that was our literature, that was our reading material. And his memory of, uh, of wanting to have been a lawyer and not having fulfilled that ambition uh, became something that was very, in a very straightforward way, uh, the inspiration for what we wanted to do. But also, I think, a dedication to community, to the public. Our father was very active in, in his community and service organizations, uh, very active in helping people in uh, a significant way. And we observed that as young uh, kids, and we admired it greatly and wanted to emulate his, his example. And that was not only true of law. Uh, you may know that the Greenspans have this uh, affection, almost infatuation with baseball. Well, <laughs> that also stems from our father. Every weekend from Niagara Falls to Buffalo to Offerman Stadium to see the International League Buffalo Bisons uh, was something that he loved uh, and uh, exposed us to. And in fact, in the fall of 1956, which was just six months before he passed away, he took Eddie and I to the to the uh, fourth game of the 1956 World Series, uh, which uh, is only important for baseball fans in uh, that we missed Don Larson's perfect game by one game. Oh, uh, wow. Don Larson's <laughs> perfect game was the fifth game. We saw the fourth game. 
So you, when you're when you're telling the story of growing up, what's fascinating to me is you know you describe going from a reasonably affluent family to the very early passing of your father. Um, I imagine many people in that situation would go more into a survivalist mode, but yet somehow you and your brother and your sister all maintained the ideology of pursuing something larger. And I, I imagine that wasn't an easy decision. Was there not a crossroads where you thought we just have to survive and, and maybe we'll just get a job outside of the loftier goals of law? Well, I, I think that we were all survivors in the sense that we all, you know, I worked at uh, Ben's Menswear Thursdays <laughs> and Saturdays starting in grade 10. Uh, That's uh, where your, your dress comes uh, from. You're always so well-dressed, and so now I, I know. All right, and uh, it was a wonderful uh, fellow, and his, his son, uh, who has now passed away, was also a great friend of mine in high school. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I worked construction in the summers. I, uh, uh, Eddie, uh, Eddie collected, um, he was the fellow who was the, uh, cleared the meters in Niagara Falls and had this <laughs> stroller, I think he, must have taken the odd penny here and there as well, <laughs> but he uh, collected uh, money from the meters. We all worked and we all uh, contributed, hopefully, to our family. And my mother obviously worked very hard, but we also had a very supportive family, uh, not a wealthy family. The rest of the family had not been as successful as our father, but, uh, but a very supportive and warm and loving family and a very, very warm and supportive very small Jewish community in Niagara Falls. There were only 53 families, uh, five of whom were Greenspans, uh, so we were 10% of the community. Uh, but they were very, very supportive and uh, helped in, in many ways to ensure that we um, uh, stayed on the straight and narrow. Right. So you went off to the University of Toronto um, and got your BA there in 1968, I believe, and then your um, law degree from Osgood in 71. And I do I understand it right that your brother went directly into law, but you continued on your schooling in the London School of Economics? Eddie, uh, after we were three years apart in age, three years and two weeks, we were also three years apart in school until my, my master law year. Um, so in 71, um, I finished law school. In 68, when I started law school, Eddie was articling and then went from articling at the Attorney General's office uh, directly into practice uh, with Joe Pomerant. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I finished in 71, I was fortunate enough to have received a, a fellowship to uh, uh, do a Master of Law degree, and I chose to uh, go to England to, uh, to the London School of Economics for a year. But th that wasn't a change in direction at all. It was really on the same path. It's just that we had never been able to at least I had never been able to afford to go to Europe. So I'd never been to Europe. Uh, I was then 24 years old, uh, and I had the opportunity uh, to have a very, very uh, comfortable fellowship uh, in the years when fellowships were not yet taxed. Uh, and so I had uh, the financial opportunity to uh, see Europe. And uh, in fact, a lot of people during that era uh, said that the acronym LSE was Let's See Europe, uh, not <laughs> not necessarily the London School of Economics. And I had that opportunity. I had never been to Israel. I spent a month in Israel. I spent three or four months on the continent during my year abroad. Uh, I spent uh, three and a half weeks at the end of my year with some very, very close friends from the LSE in the Soviet Union. Went to uh, uh, Leningrad and Moscow in the dark days of the, the Soviet era uh, before in the in the summer before uh, the uh, Canada Russia uh, summit series, so no regrets. 
No regrets. Although, from reading Eddie's book, as I recall, it did cost you your QC. Apparently. Well, Isn't that right? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Well, it, only on the assumption that I would have uh, received it in my first year of eligibility. So my first year of eligibility in those days, uh, the Crown could get a, a QC in 10 years. The defense bar had to wait 12 and so I was called in 74, so my year of eligibility was 86. Uh, Ian Scott became the Attorney General just before that. He decided at the time to rethink how QCs were to be awarded. It turned out to be that 85 was the last year QCs in Ontario were ever awarded. So my class from Osgood was the last class to get their QC, and since then there hasn't been one, uh, at least in the defense bar in, in Ontario. Yeah, I remember, I think the story was a, a rather cold rendezvous at a, at a restaurant on New Year's. You're right. That, that's when they were typically announced at the time. That's and right. You and your brother were sitting there, and Ian Scott had walked in. Yeah, and Eddie turned to him, and he said, we were leaving, actually, and we had ju- it was just after my... Uh, uh, my daughter was born in, uh, in on November 5th, and so we had a baby at home, and my wife and I and uh, Eddie were leaving. Eddie's family were down south, but Eddie hadn't been able to join them because of a case. Uh, and so the three of us were having a, an early New Year's exit when Ian Scott came in, and, and Ian said, what are the Greenspan brothers doing leaving so early on New Year's? <laughs> and Eddie said, we were to go to Brian's QC party, but, but you cancelled it. <laughs> So I imagine as you're over in Europe, I'm sure you're having a great time, but hearing the stories from your brother, you must have been chomping at the bit a little bit of getting into the practice of criminal law. So tell us um, when that happened and what it was like when you first started practicing, I guess in comparison to the practice of criminal law today. Well, there were uh, certainly a number. I came back and articled. I had my articles deferred, but I also articled at the Ministry of the Attorney General and articled there on my return. Uh, then um, the uh, uh, bar admission course and took up the next period of time where, uh, as we all did at that time, mm-hmm. for many years after, uh, you actually went to school for six months. Um, and then it came to uh, the end of March of uh, 1974, uh, and during my articles, I had discussed with Eddie the idea that I really didn't want to join the firm that he was at at that time. Uh, I had worked with Mr. Pomerant during law school. Um, we didn't have uh, a great um, mutual interest uh, in each other. Uh, we didn't work together very effectively. I thought that uh, if Eddie and I were going to go out together, uh, that that's when it ought to be. Uh, he thought otherwise. We had brief disagreement about it. He convinced me to come to the firm, as I did, uh, for 10 months, uh, because uh, that year, in the fall of 1974, uh, Eddie and uh, Joe Pomerant were off to do the Demeter trial, and so they'd be away for three, four months. Uh, They were focused on that trial, uh, and that there was going to be a real opportunity to do some very interesting work uh, without... uh, uh, Joe Palmer there. Uh, at the same time, the firm was quite an extraordinary group of people because it was Joe and David Pomerant, and then Eddie was third of the firm. Uh, the fourth member of the firm was Alan Gold. Uh, the fifth member of the firm who had been uh, an old friend of mine and we had started university together in first year at uh, University College and we're at Sir Daniel Wilson residence together was a, a fellow named Mike Moldover. <laughs> uh, and um, I, uh, uh, I was the 
a sixth lawyer in the firm, and our articling student that year was Mark Rosenberg. Unbelievable. Now, can I ask you, did you know at the time that this was something really special, like a group of people? Did you realize that people would have the direction in their career that they did? I, th- I think we we all valued each other. We all thought that we were very capable people. Did we uh, see uh, a Supreme Court of Canada judge <laughs> in our midst? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> did we see you know an extraordinary lawyer and academic in Alan Gold? I think we saw maybe more of the academic side of Alan uh, at that time uh, and appreciated his uh, his work uh, uh, in terms of case research and case law at the time. We all had our strengths and we all had uh, different aspects of our personality. Um, and it, at the end of uh, uh, the Demeter trial, uh, after they came back, in very short order, I thought this wasn't a comfortable place for me to continue to work. It had nothing to do with anyone other than sort of a personality clash with uh, with Joe. And so I, Eddie and I had a heart-to-heart, I, and I had a, an idea as well that uh, he wanted to continue to stay there. And I said, uh, my approach that turned out actually to be surprisingly prescient and, and true of our relationship, I thought we'd be better brothers in different firms. I mm-hmm. thought we'd be closer associates, and we'd be able to do work together. There wouldn't be conflicts. So we would be able to represent co-accused in cases and work together uh, and be able to uh, be more effective and help each other more in our careers than we might otherwise uh, have had uh, that opportunity were we in the same firm. Right. And there's no doubt you can see that, the synergistic um, you know, relationship that you and your brother had in, in over the years. And we continue to have it uh, throughout uh, his life and uh, um, and we and I terribly miss it today. Mm-hmm. But um, February 14th of 1975, so I'd only been there 11 months, um, even a bit short of that. I set out on my own and and, uh, started my own firm. But interestingly, there was wonderful work that I did during that work, and I was very, very proud of some of the opportunities uh, that uh, Joe Palmer had given me. Um, I had already, you know, in those days, um, you did uh, leaves to appeal. Supreme Court of Canada were done uh, orally. Uh, you had 15-minute uh, leaves. I had, I had done three or four leaves to appeal uh, the Supreme Court of Canada in my first year. Wow. Uh, I had a couple of extraordinary opportunities in terms of appeals to the Court of Appeal of Ontario that I wouldn't otherwise have had. And my first trial, um, which uh, started on, I was called March 29th of 74. My first trial was in Peterborough, Ontario, before Justice Hansberger, uh, with four wonderful uh, co-counsel, uh, one of whom became the Associate Chief Just- Justice of the Ontario Court, Don Ebbs. Uh, Gary McNeely was co-counsel, also a legendary criminal lawyer from the Peterborough, Oshawa area. Uh, Jeff Adair, who changed to civil litigation, uh, was then in Peterborough and a co-counsel. Uh, and uh, uh, Doug Hunt was the articling student for the uh, uh, prosecutor who was from the Attorney General's office who later became a judge up in Kenora. A wonderful group of people uh, and I started that first case literally in the first week after I was called. It was a Satan's Choice Obstruct Justice case uh, and it's reported. Wow. So my very first case was reported on a pretrial motion I brought on uh, obstruction of justice. That's amazing. So you know when you're talking about um, 
you, you just so nonchalantly talk about people like Alan Gold and Mark Rosenberg and your brother. And what I'm trying to understand is there, you know, over the years, you've not just practiced with the people you've mentioned, but many, many others who have become true titans of the practice. Is there a golden thread that you see among these lawyers that you can say there's a common trait or work ethic? Is there something that you've recognized? Let me ask you another way. Is there, is there a way that you can spot who is going to be a great lawyer at a young age from your perspective today? I, I, wish, I wish I could. We've had many, for instance, many wonderful articling students who have come through the doors of our firm over the years. I haven't always been right uh, <laughs> uh, in our choices, uh, or our group hasn't always been right, but many, many wonderful lawyers. But I think take a step back. You know, we had uh, we had people to emulate uh, before uh, in those years. There was, uh, you know, Arthur Maloney, uh, G. Arthur Martin, Charles Dubbin, uh, the the titans of that era. And I don't view myself as a titan. I think I thank you for the compliment, but but that's a, a word I think reserved uh, for those who have a greater legacy than than I will have. Uh, but but of my era, uh, when I was a young lawyer. Um, Martin and Dubbin went to the court before I was called. While I was, uh, while I was articling, uh, they went to the Court of Appeal. But I'd already seen them on a number of occasions as counsel. Uh, and they were magnificent orators. They were uh, quick on their feet. They were thoughtful. Uh, they were charming. Jarrett um, Martin, in perhaps a more um, oratorical and sophisticated way, uh, Charlie Dubbin with a smile on his face and a quick wit that was really difficult uh, to uh, to emulate in any way. Uh, but uh, and Arthur Maloney had charm uh, that was quite extraordinary. All of them were these extraordinarily gifted but unbelievably hardworking people uh, who were committed uh, not only to uh, that hard work. Uh, but were committed to the justice system. They had a passion for justice. They had a commitment uh, to uh, uh, criminal justice. Uh, they had a commitment to their clients. Uh, that was also seen, although he moved on to other areas of litigation, but uh, uh, I had the privilege of seeing and, and meeting J.J. Robinette on a number of occasions and indeed shared a, a table when I was president of the Criminal Lawyers Association as our guest of honor so many times. Uh, Robinette was, again, this uh, uh, elegant and uh, incredibly forceful and impressive person. So we had our heroes. David Humphrey, my partner's father, Mm -hmm. was, you know, he made it look easy. Everybody thought that David Humphrey wasn't the meticulous uh, preparer of every word that he was about to say. It was always well thought out. It wasn't simply uh, a gut reaction or a visceral response. It was always uh, thoughtful and careful and effective. Uh, These people knew advocacy in a way in which uh, they were steeped in the traditions of the great advocates. So they were great examples of people who you wanted to uh, uh, to emulate. When I went out on my own, uh, Arthur Maloney was very helpful in my career. Austin Cooper was extraordinarily generous and kind to me early in my uh, time as a sole practitioner, and and gave me some uh, some 
cases that obviously he didn't want to pursue. <laughs> uh, but there was even one opportunity that Austin gave me that was an extraordinary opportunity and an incredibly generous thing for him to do. He asked me for an opinion on an issue relating to an extradition uh, from the state of Georgia. Uh, Canada was seeking the extradition of a, a businessman from Georgia named Eli Freeman. Uh, and uh, it was a technical issue, and he wanted some research done and retained me as an outside lawyer to do the research. I wrote the memo. He looked at the memo, reviewed it, thought it was, a, it was very complimentary about it, and said, I, but I disagree with you. And bottom line is, I don't agree with you, so I think there's only one thing that can be done. I want to send you down as the expert because I don't want to give that opinion, but they need that opinion, uh, so uh, I'll send you down to Atlanta, Georgia. And I had this extraordinary opportunity where Gord Hackborn, later Justice Hackborn, was on the other side from the Attorney General's office. Uh, and I'm in a reported judgment in the matter of Eli Friedman mm. uh, as an expert from Canada uh, in, uh, in about 1977, um, which was really an, an extraordinary event. The other thing, by the way, I'm sorry to return to it. One of the things that and I didn't appreciate at the time, and certainly wasn't part of my plan. Uh, when I decided to do my LLM, I didn't realize the positive benefits that took place almost upon my return. Um, in that era, very few people who, um, who were in the practice of law had master's of law degree. If you had an LLM, you were teaching. And that was, it, you didn't have the part-time LLM degrees that we now have. Right. Uh, you didn't have the proliferation of, of Master's of Law degree, which just, you know, sort of focusing your in, interest on your, on your uh, specialization uh, area. So when I came back to Canada and started the practice of criminal law, I'm not sure whether I was the only practicing criminal lawyer with an LLM, but if there were any others... I don't know who they were. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone else in the criminal bar that had an LLM were teaching full-time. As a result, in 1977, I'm only three years at the bar, uh, Osgood invited me to teach a course at Osgood called the uh, Administration of Criminal Justice. Uh, I asked them whether I could invite a crown to join me. They thought that was a good idea. They gave me the right to choose who I wanted to. And so between 77 and 84, uh, Dave Doherty and I went up to uh, uh, Osgood uh, every Wednesday night uh, to teach the administration of criminal justice. That's amazing. I want to return to a comment you, you mentioned about um, David Humphrey Sr. And what you described was essentially the appearance of ease, the appearance of fluidity within the courtroom, and essentially a true mastery. And I guess, in a sense, that that's what mastery is, is making it look easy, making it look natural. And, you know, uh, certainly um, Justice Humphrey had the uh, reputation of, of having this connection with the jury that can only come from a certain genuine aspect. But um, looking back to those advocates, the ones that you refer to as titans, um, do you not think that that type of mastery was a lot more narrow than it is today? Because you... Um, sort of self-efface and say you're not a titan. I, I think every one of our listeners would disagree with that. And and I, I think um, my view is that that type of mastery is relative to your time. And you uh, had a time uh, where you had to master a lot more than just being a good orator, for example. Um, do you think that um, 
advocacy in criminal litigation has become harder today than it is back um, when you first started in the sense that you have to master much more? I think you have to know more law. There, the, um, you know, we always talked about the fact that when you, you know, in, in our early days, uh, a factum to the Court of Appeal was um, emphasized to be a concise statement of fact and law. Uh, so very frequently your factum, uh, including every issue, would be uh, 12 to 15 pages. Uh, you'd never seek uh, leave to have an expanded factum. Uh, there was a very limited uh, amount of case law being produced. Uh, the court was much more succinct in its judgments and they were much more focused. Uh, very often uh, we talked about the the uh, the eloquence of the single volume of the CCCs that G. Arthur Martin would often place on his desk, and you'd walk in. And th- those days, you have to remember, no photocopying. You went to the library in in the morning. You you um, at the great library at Osgood. You put your books on the trolley and took the trolley into the courtroom. And then we'd walk in, and you'd see a single volume of the CCCs in front of G. Arthur Martin's. Uh, uh, chair, not, and you wouldn't see the binding out. The binding would be facing him, and you knew that that was the case you missed, uh, <laughs> and it was the case that either he had argued as counsel uh, or that he had written uh, as a member of the court. Uh, and so the body of law was much more, much, much more narrow, uh, and and quite frankly, you know, uh, charter litigation has been the explosion in our work. Uh, it's changed the dynamic uh, of every aspect of what we do uh, as criminal lawyers, and probably most significantly. And I I've written about this on a couple of occasions in a, a book that was written celebrating the um, 150th uh, anniversary of Canada. Uh, I wrote a piece on the charter saying that. Stinchcombe uh, is the most important case uh, produced in criminal law uh, in the history of the criminal law of this country. It changed the entire dynamic of how we practice. Uh, It um, not only gave the right uh, and the constitutional uh, entrenched right to disclosure, uh, but it meant uh, that we now could not be ambushed. We uh, knew that uh, here was the case to meet, uh, and it meant that the nature of preparation, uh, the ability to respond to the allegation, uh, was uh, was in some ways uh, it was made easier because you knew what you're facing. But in many ways, in terms of the demands and the practice of law, it was uh, far more uh, a daunting challenge because you uh, because you knew you had to. Uh, prepare and be responsive to what uh, could reasonably be expected uh, in the case. So that, um, sure, the, you know, the dynamic has changed and the movement from, and I've bemoaned this on a number of occasions, and I, I know you've read a couple of the lectures I've given in the last several years, uh, but that precipitated the move from the emphasis on oral advocacy to written advocacy. Because uh, if we just kept it at oral advocacy without the ability of, of judges to review in advance uh, all of the material that you were going to canvas, uh, then uh, uh, Jordan uh, would uh, have to be expanded to uh, a 60-month uh, parameter, not a 30-month, because the backlog would be uh, so overwhelming uh, that it would be impossible to deal effectively with, uh, with our justice system. 
So I, I'm going to belabor this because um, I think uh, our re- listeners really want to hear about how one reaches a point of mastery in advocacy um, like you have, even though you may not accept the compliment. Um, I remember, you know, as a, as a story, um, to, to put my point into perspective, um, as a summer student watching um, a trial um, with Marie Hannon, uh, Ralph Steinberg, I think it was a Matty Baranowski trial, mm-hmm. and watching that as a student and watching uh, counsel like them in, in particular um, cross-examining and thinking, I will never, ever be able to do that because the ease that came from it. So, But you now do. Well, so, I won't uh, accept that no, compliment. No, right. <laughs> but, no, but there are certain uh, skills uh, that one has uh, that some are innate and some are learned. Uh, some can really be acquired uh, by hard work uh, and uh, reading the literature and reading uh, the great cross-examinations of uh, historically. Um, I think as young lawyers, too often uh, we're uh, somewhat arrogant and think that uh, the, the day we walk into a court we're going to be able to do it all. Uh, and I think that that's understandable and it's a function both of, uh, of youth and, uh, and inexperience. Uh, the reality is that cross-examination, other than for very few uh, in our in our world, uh, to whom it seems uh, to be natural, uh, it is an acquired skill. You know, it's strange. Um, examination in chief is never called an art, uh, even though I think it is. Mm-hmm, an effective examination in chief uh, is can be stunningly effective uh, if it's done uh, properly. Uh, but cross-examination has always been the art of cross-examination. Uh, well, uh, some people are naturally artistic. Uh, some people uh, become proficient uh, at the art, and some people uh, learn from mistakes and are able to incorporate that into the way in which they approach questioning. Um, and um, that, I think, you know, it, you can read all the... I, I, I think it's important to read, you know, even uh, the classic texts like Wellman on Cross-Examination, which I still have in its leather-bound version uh, in my library, and it's occasionally worth taking a look at, at what Wellman had to say, even though it's a bit archaic in terms of the form of questioning and the way in which you approach it. But the theory of how you approach uh, cross-examination remains the same and, and how you stop people from and are able to corral people into where you're going, uh, the way in which you put uh, the previous inconsistent statement to a witness, uh, whether you raise your voice or don't raise your voice, uh, whether uh, you continue to uh, be uh, courteous and pleasant or whether you decide to be uh, somewhat uh, uh, short-tempered uh, at some point in the cross-examination. All of those uh, perhaps dram- you know, partially dramatic arts, uh, but part of it is just uh, straightforward advocacy skill is something that um, trial and error uh, it really does improve. And I think, let me say this about it. We all have to find our own voice. We all have to find out who we are, you know, what's most effective to us, what's more, most comfortable to us. And simply by, by trying to um, copy or imitate uh, the people that we see who we think do it effectively, 
we may not be able to incorporate that uh, into the way we can comfortably ask a question. Uh, some people are more uh, verbal. Some people uh, have uh, language that is uh, uh, somewhat flowery. Some people are just more straightforward and, and uh, visceral, and, and some people uh, like uh, uh, punching to the stomach repeatedly uh, while others uh, uh, go about it in a different way. You have to find uh, in all aspects of advocacy uh, what feels most comfortable to you and what feels most comfortable uh, to uh, the your ability to persuade, because all advocacy is, is the power of persuasion. It's interesting because as you were describing this, it seems to me that you're describing the very golden thread I asked about, and that is just being genuine and finding that type of natural projection of who you are and somehow molding that into advocacy, you know, being yourself, but being yourself in the courtroom. Because um, what what I've seen is sort of younger lawyers trying to emulate people like yourself or people like uh, Marie Hannon. And until you find your actual uh, shoes, it doesn't quite fit. For instance, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 71 years old now. Uh, which I still think is is young, hopefully. Although I'm setting <laughs> I'm setting Greenspan records for male long, male Greenspan records for longevity right now. Um, but uh, uh, I was a I was a child of the '60s. So uh, in the 60s, as I grew up in Niagara Falls, uh, you know, on the way to football practice, because our home was halfway between the high school and the football field, uh, I would stop to see John Kennedy press conferences. And JFK was an enormous influence oratorically and almost spiritually uh, to my generation of people that were interested in politics and in public service uh, and in justice generally. Uh, you know, many years before, uh, there, you know, it's not as if it was brand new rhetoric, but, but uh, even Churchill at one time said that uh, we make a living by what we get. Uh, we make uh, a life by what we give. Uh, well, translate that into, you know, uh, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Uh, Kennedy said it more eloquently even than Churchill, uh, but they were inspirational words. Uh, and so it was that type of oratory uh, that would capture someone, you know, who at the time of his presidency was, uh, I was... Uh, I was 14, 15, uh, he died when I was 16 years old. Um, uh, and so that type of, of oratory was something that, uh, uh, that was, I, I think, inspirational. Martin Luther King's words, uh, you know, 1968, uh, when, when he died, was the year I got my Bachelor of Arts degree. Uh, I was at university during a tumultuous time in world history where we, were, we went from uh, my brother's three years before me, and he was in, we were both involved in student politics. His student politics at University College was who was going to uh, uh, be the big band sound for the, uh, for the closing dance at University College. Uh, three years later, uh, our student uh, council, at, the student minister of council at U of T, we were keeping Dow off campus because of their complicity in the war in Vietnam and inviting Tim Leary onto campus, and he was stopped at the border uh, to lecture on LSD. So that was a, it was a dramatic 
change well, historically, and it also changed style. It changed style uh, from the older style of, uh, of sort of public oratory to a, uh, a version that was, uh, I think, uh, more, uh, some, in some ways more forceful, uh, but in some ways less oratorical. You know, as you're saying this, what I, I I'm sort of seeing maybe these ebbs and flows in history. You know, there's obviously the time of of um, your father's time, where it produced lawyers like J. Arthur Martin, J.J. Robinette, with the calamity of the World War, and then of course uh, what you're describing with Vietnam and uh, change and and perspectives of social justice, and um, now obviously we're in rather um, interesting times. And no uh, what you can see happening in the United States, sort of this new um, trend of uh, amazing litigators fighting for people who are being mistreated as a result of immigration and, and other things. Um, do you see another essentially advocacy epoch happening today? I, 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 certainly, there's, I think there's going to be, there, there should be and is some renewal of the commitment to social justice that... Um, was evident in the 60s and in the civil rights movements uh, of the of the 60s, and we're we're seeing some aspect of that. I think hopefully reemerging. Uh, that's quite. I think should be inspirational to to both this generation and the new generation of, of lawyers. I think that the common thread amongst criminal lawyers, or one of the common threads, is a commitment and passion uh, for. Uh, for public justice and the idea that that we have transparency, we have a notion of uh, of what's fair and right, and that people uh, will be treated properly and decently. Uh, very often, and without romanticizing it beyond uh, its uh, its place in society, uh, but uh, I think people who have a passion for criminal justice. Uh, in some ways, view themselves as you know, uh, putting their finger in the dike, making sure that uh, democracy is preserved uh, and that uh, uh, and that the floodgates aren't opened uh, to oppression. And right now, I think, um, certainly in my lifetime uh, and long before my lifetime, I think America is more threatened in terms of its uh, democratic principles than at any time in my life. Do you see that creeping into Canada as well? No, I, 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 I don't see it in a serious way. I, I think I see it occasionally. I, you know, there are moments where I, uh, I um, have modest concerns, but uh, I don't think that they're systemic concerns, and I think that uh, our system is still strong. You have to remember that, that uh, our notion of social justice and our notion of, of politics is, uh, is quite has been always substantially different than America. You know, uh, a Republican from the United States doesn't exist in Canada, uh, and a Democrat in the United States uh, is a conservative in Canada. Our, our politics is, has a shift in a significant way. And growing up on the border, uh, although we, um, we looked uh, across the Rainbow Bridge, at least to get our Tom McCann shoes and have our first uh, our first beer because it was then 18 in America when it was 21 in in Canada, uh, and um, although we looked south, we also um, uh, were not 
we thought we had a better society, and we 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 continue to do so. You know, the fact that uh, um, healthcare came to Canada when I was still a university student, and America still struggling with the notion, is quite extraordinary. So their their um, uh, their concept of public justice and their concept of the role that government plays in its society is very, very different than ours. I think that's, of course, something to be aspired towards, but strictly from an advocacy point of view, um, perhaps the polarity in positions in the U.S., you know, uh, one side is seeking the death penalty and the other side is is asking for clemency or or nothing. Um, You know, here it seems like the positions, the adversarial positions are closer along the spectrum. And do you think that that has had an effect on how good advocates need to become. And I guess it's another way of asking the question, do you feel that in some ways our adversarial system is at risk? And I think you discussed this a little bit in your Borolaska lecture um, in 2018, just in March, um, that you fear that perhaps, um, and I hope I'm not misstating this, but you, you fear that perhaps there's a... Uh, a loss of, of how important this adversarial system is. Well, the, the loss was a loss in oral advocacy. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that we've diminished the quality. In fact, I think in some ways we've even advanced the quality of, uh, of written advocacy. Uh, I blame uh, to some extent in the speech, even though I have enormous admiration for, uh, but um, in appellate advocacy, in the world of appellate advocacy, uh, John Laskin, who just retired from our Court of Appeal and Bor Laskin's son, uh, wrote this brilliant piece uh, when he first became an appellate judge uh, about, and it was a, it was a baseball analogy, so it, it was so attractive. You know, uh, uh, forget the wind up, go directly to the pitch. And it was published in the Advocate Society Journal. Uh, and that was um, a rebirth, or at least a, a direction of uh, let's uh, let's get oral advocacy in there quickly, because you have a wealth of written material uh, that the judges have reviewed, uh, and just highlight uh, the aspects of your of your case orally. Uh, I regretted that. And to some extent, I still do. I think that we, you know, time limits uh, are are very restrictive, especially when they're imposed uh, and can be imposed very strictly upon counsel. Uh, sometimes you don't get your opportunity to really make your case because the courts ask so many questions in the court of appeal that they've they've taken up your time and you don't get to where uh, you want to go. Uh, but you know uh, where you want to go, uh, you have to remember. You have to be flexible. You have to be uh, pretty nimble on your feet. Uh, it's been said somebody ascribed this to Yogi Berra, but I think it's too complex for Berra that you know if you if you don't know where you're going when you get there, you know you're lost. Uh, well, you know in advocacy, you have to know where you're going, and you have to be able to if you're taken off the track. You have to make sure you continue on the road to uh, where you want to uh, get to. So let me ask you, what do you see as the role of the defense lawyer? Well, to the adversarial process is the process by which we've determined how to seek the truth. Um, you know, I during my year abroad, I studied uh, uh, international criminal law. I studied Soviet criminal law. 
I uh, uh, am reasonably familiar with the inquisitorial process, inquisitorial system. I just recently was asked to write an opinion on a murder case in, in Honduras and uh, went down to Tegucigalpa for a couple of days to uh, review the way in which uh, they operate from an inquisitorial perspective. Um, that is the whole it's a different uh, standard of, of how you, uh, the role one plays uh, as counsel. Uh, we are a, uh, an adversarial system where uh, the two sides have to, uh, to get justice, have to vigorously, honestly, and with integrity uh, present their positions uh, and present it in as effective a way as possible. Uh, for us to, from a defense perspective, to expose the weaknesses in the prosecution's case uh, and to advance our position as effectively uh, and as vigorously as we can. And it's only if you have that clash um, of effective prosecution uh, against effective um, defense uh, does the system, both in theory but I think effectively in practice, can the system of the adversarial process be vindicated? That's, that's how we find out what happened. Uh, and even if we don't find out what happened, uh, we do find out whether or not uh, the accused person should suffer a penal consequence and suffer the consequences of being found to have committed the wrongful act. When, when we hear that, you know, advocacy, when you hear the adversarial approach, you, uh, I think a lot of people... Uh, conflate that with aggressiveness, with being uh, mean in court. And I, you are someone who uh, have taught and, and lectured many times on the issue of civility and something to, that you seem to be quite passionate about. So are there limits to the adversarial process? And, and what is that balance? Because as we know from recently from uh, Joe Groya's case, that really was pushed to, the envelope was pushed as to how far people can go. What are your thoughts on Well, I, and I've, I was involved in the Groya case and... Mm-hmm. and uh, was involved in the matter before Justice Campbell in, in the Court of Appeal. Um, and, you know, Joe uh, was an incredibly effective advocate and, and was responding uh, in, uh, in a sense uh, to the onslaught that he faced. Um, I don't want to get into the specifics of the case, and, uh, but, I, but I think that at least... Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada judgment is a, a vindication of vigorous advocacy. It's a vindication of uh, being able to effectively uh, and honest, honorably and honestly uh, advance your case in, in, in an effective way. I think that where it crosses the line is what the Americans have called Rambo advocacy. And Rambo advocacy, uh, after the Stallone character, uh, is the type of lawyer who they describe as walking into the courtroom uh, with a grenade, uh, and the first thing the lawyer does, rather than open his mouth, is he as he as he pulls the uh, uh, <laughs> the grenade and, and tosses it in, and then begins to speak, right? right? Uh, and it's part of the explosion. Uh, after pulling the pin, as part of the explosion that follows. Uh, that, uh, first of all, I don't think that's effective advocacy. Um, and I think that uh, uh, just, uh, you know, uh, simply 
raising your voice and elevating uh, you know, your, uh, your physical presence uh, and being in someone's face doesn't usually work. It usually aggravates everybody uh, and isn't terribly effective. So what is accepted? I think that, uh, again, it's got to be based on the principles of, of first of all, uh, you have to uh, demonstrate uh, honesty, and integrity in what you do, but in challenging somebody who, uh, if your theory is the person's a liar, if your theory is that the person has no credibility, uh, then you um, you have to use whatever means you have to attempt to demonstrate that the person's not telling the truth. Right. Um, and if that requires being aggressive, then you have to be aggressive. I think there's nothing wrong with being aggressive. Again. The mood of the court, the mood of, of, of what you're doing has to be read carefully uh, and you, uh, because the objective is to accomplish your goal and uh, sometimes uh, simple, simply going to war doesn't work um, and uh, very frequently attempting to uh, get someone on your side and, and uh, sort of coercing them in different ways is, is uh, more effective. Uh, the adversarial approach has drawn a lot of controversy as of late, in particular as it relates to sexual assaults. And from what I've seen as of late, we've uh, sort of have a new narrative um, taking place on the presumption of innocence and that it has no place um, outside of the courtroom, or more specifically, due process in a sense. Um, and, and essentially that general society should not only disregard its significance outside of court, but should go so far as to even believe complainants before a trial has taken place. And as I see it, again, my view is that this rhetoric uh, has a corrosive effect on due process and for particular crimes. And I wonder, um, do you see that same thing? And if so, what do you see with this danger of language, particularly when politicians are using it to suggest that a just result wasn't reached or that fundamental principles that we hold dear as defense lawyers ought to be revisited. First of all, if you have a public commitment um, in advance of a trial to the even the likelihood uh, that the accused person committed the, um, the offense, uh, then you inevitably have, if they're acquitted, uh, an erosion of confidence uh, in the administration of criminal justice uh, and the fair result. What I often say to my friends uh, socially, who are not lawyers, but uh, very astute um, observers of, of our community, uh, is uh, how could you ever reach that conclusion? You weren't there, you didn't hear the evidence, you don't know uh, and weren't uh, in a courtroom for three weeks while the complainant was uh, was shredded uh, and her inconsistencies demonstrated to be untrue, or where uh, his uh, uh, accusations of impropriety uh, were demonstrated to be inconsistent with objective facts, and not just uh, where you have two versions of events that are contradictory. So if you end, we then rely upon uh, a press that most times are trying to do their their job effectively, but obviously can't summarize in uh, in three columns what may have occurred over three weeks. Uh, you're relying upon uh, an interpretation of what 
evidence was relevant to the ultimate decision that was made by a jury. Sometimes uh, people are acquitted only because of the standard of proof, that it's such a high burden of proof that uh, you understand why people might believe that person on the balance of probabilities, may simply believe them without even applying a standard, uh, regardless of what the standard of proof might be. Uh, but if they were forced to put that uh, uh, assessment of the allegation uh, to the strict proof beyond a reasonable doubt, there might be a different result. Mm -hmm. And so you can see the disconnect. Uh, and it's not, it's something that we have to deal with in our society. We have to uh, try to reinforce the notion that it's one thing to think reasonably that an event occurred. It's another thing to, uh, for a person to face uh, incarceration, deprivation of liberty, deprivation sometimes of, of uh, uh, very, very basic human rights for an extended period of time, uh, and with repercussions on family and employment, uh, perhaps for the rest of their lives. Uh, before we do that, uh, we, we have to be more certain. We have to be clearer in our assessment of guilt or innocence. So there, there will be, uh, you know, Classically in America, you know, O.J. Simpson is acquitted, right. Right? but civilly uh, he's found to have been responsible for his wife's death. Uh, that is a disconnect that will always uh, haunt the justice system because the disconnect is between the standards of, of proof. But what I resent is not the disconnect between a civil verdict and a criminal verdict. I resent the immediate reaction by members of the public that simply by making an accusation without having facts to support that accusation other than the mere allegation of impropriety, uh, that people jump on the bandwagon and say it must be true. Uh, I think that in a number of cases, uh, a number of very public cases, uh, it's been demonstrated that people who uh, make uh, accusations uh, simply are not being truthful. Right. That really resonates because I don't know if you've found the same thing, but you know, as a defense lawyer, people will always ask you what your thoughts are on a particular case. What did you think of this case? What did you think of this case? And my answer more and more is I have no idea. And yet people, you know, who have read headlines have such certainty. And even in my own cases, I have yeah. no idea what actually happened. That's, That's right. not my role. I agree. I know, I, Sean, I agree with you completely, all right? And, and I say the same things uh, to friends, you know, I, I really, you know, I, I don't even like the question, right. you know, the question, so what do you think happened? <laughs> well, I, you know, well, quite frankly, all I've read is the press, uh, and uh, uh, in reading the press, uh, quite frankly, I have more questions than answers, right. you know, because I, you know, when you read the press and the report of a case, uh, or a trial that's ongoing, uh, you think about what isn't there as opposed to what is there. You think about, from our perspective, um, what um, what we know from our experience uh, may be happening. Let me ask you this, because um, I'm going back to uh, the book I read that started sure. it all for me. Um, <laughs> and one of the chapters talked about um, the breakfasts you would have with your brother and and I'm sure other lawyers every Sunday. Oh, for many years, it was just the two of us. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And is that your ritual? Because, you know, I ask this question a lot to, to all my guests, and 
to be honest, that's where my question came from because I thought of the ritual that you and your brother had. And is is are there any other rituals uh, outside of that, or do you, can you talk about that one? Well, there are a number. Uh, for let, let's talk about uh, we'll talk about Eddie first. Sure. Uh, uh, cer- certainly, uh, I think for both of us, uh, I hope for Eddie it was. Um, but um, when um, when we had tough issues and tough problems, uh, you know. Uh, certainly it would appear that he turned to me and certainly I turned to him. Um, so our Sunday breakfast became, first of all, a, an easy opportunity to, uh, to have, uh, many years, for many years it was at the Senator. Uh, and, uh, we'd have an easy opportunity to just the two of us sit down for an hour, an hour and a half and, and just discuss things that had arisen in our life. Some, sometimes non-law. Um, seldom, uh, but uh, certainly sometimes issues in our families and and uh, 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 some other uh, private or personal matters, but mostly law. Later on, it became uh, even more continuous in terms of uh, we would probably, I'm not saying we would talk seven days a week, but we would certainly talk five or six uh, times a week. Uh, normally when an issue arose, uh, and uh, he would uh, very often uh, phone me and say, I've got this, what do you think? Or I would do uh, the same. Uh, occasionally, if it was later on in the evening, and he'd phone, uh, I would say, wait a second, and I would turn you know, to my iPad and quickly look up something and quickly uh, <laughs> think about what case might be a applicable and I would say you know why do you think about you know write this down and you know why don't you think about this case where where so and so said the following and he would say how the hell do you know that <laughs> because you may know that Eddie never had a computer right uh, and uh, he uh, uh, he was very resistant to the whole idea he loved books he loved the feel of books and the feel of a newspaper I still love the feel of a newspaper there's a, a globe and a post at my door every morning at, at six o'clock and I by by six fifteen, I I'm already reading the hard copy. It's only when I'm away do I go to Globe to Go uh, on my computer. Uh, but um, uh, he those discussions I think were part of our daily ritual. Part of that's continued with my niece uh, Juliana and I mm-hmm. are, are very close. We don't quite talk as frequently. Uh, but uh, she's a, a good sounding board, and hopefully I'm a good sounding board for her. Uh, and so we do chat and talk. But I have an extraordinary group of lawyers with whom I work and with whom I've worked over the course of my career. Uh, my firm is central to uh, uh, the way in which I practice, uh, and it's become even more so uh, as I've gotten older. I now view, uh, as uh, I once said, that uh, my my, my partner, Sharon Levine, who's now Adam Justice Levine, mm-hmm. was with us for 23 years. I said, you know, Sharon, one of her, you know, most, one of her roles that she's played for so many years is uh, she's the person that uh, winds up the key in the middle of my back every morning to make sure that I can continue uh, to work effectively. Well, uh, that's, uh, uh, and that was not meant to be her only. It certainly wasn't a brilliant lawyer and, and, and has did extraordinary things in, in her career with us. Uh, but David and I have been together uh, almost, uh, we've been together 31 years. 
Uh, Sharon, before her appointment, was with us 23. Seth's been with us 18. Uh, Jill's been with us more than a dozen years. Uh, Naomi's been with us eight or nine years. Uh, people who come here generally stay, and we become very much family and very much um, dependent upon each other uh, to uh, be sounding boards and to figure out what we're doing next. Uh, and I've been uh, very blessed by a group of extraordinary lawyers who have uh, been with us over the years, uh, very few of whom uh, have ever left. If, they, if they've left, they've left for judgeships. As occasionally, um, uh, uh, there were two wonderful lawyers who were with us briefly who decided that their careers would be best served in the Crown offices uh, because of the nature of their personal lives. Uh, so they they uh, went off to... Uh, crowns and now now judges it, now now Justice judges Ehrlich has yes, won. yes. Yeah, is absolutely and uh, uh and miriam uh Sack schneider is another oh of course uh yes. and so um and we've had wonderful we've had over 70 students uh, starting in 1977 uh and uh, an extraordinary group of alumni who we're very proud of so this is going to be a loaded question but how how important do you see that type of uh, immersion among great lawyers and like-minded people compared to someone who's trying to be a criminal defense litigator on their own who doesn't have a sounding board. I, th- I, th- I think on, I, I think, and I've always said that that uh, you know, and when I was a, a sole practitioner, and I was for a while. Jane, Ar- Jane Arnup was my first partner, and then Jane went off to the uh, Law Reform Commission, uh, and that's when David came to join me, uh, and then Jane came back to the Crown Law Office. Um, but so I was a sole practitioner for some period of time. What did I rely upon? I relied upon, I had my relationship with my brother, which was important, but I think that to be a criminal lawyer, you've got to be part of the criminal law community. I think activity in the Criminal Lawyers Association in, in, uh, Innocence Canada, um, if you choose the criminal justice section of the Canadian Bar of the Ontario Bar Association, uh, involvement with your peers, involvement with people who are dedicated to the same objectives as you are, with whom you can discuss matters, is critical. If you're if you have the if you're lucky enough to be part of a chambers where where people uh, are uh, both uh, collegial and uh, uh, and you have that opportunity to air your issues, uh, I think that's essential. We I don't think you can go it alone. Uh, first of all, it's too hard. This is tough work. Uh, it requires great dedication and great and and, and uh, uh, a lot of hours. You know, uh, and you continue to uh, if you're going to be effective, you can't be effective uh, without a work ethic, and you can't be effective without putting in the time that's necessary uh, to do it correctly. So a couple more uh, questions before we wrap. I could talk all day with you, Mister man, but I, I you know, <laughs> so I. Uh, a couple more questions that I ask a lot of our guests. Um, one is, what does um, a great day look like for you? I'll tell you, you can't help but enjoy a winning day <laughs> as opposed to a losing day. So um, I, I think that a great day is where you believe that what you accomplished on behalf of a client uh, was... Um, was what you term a successful result. That may be a guilty plea. It may be in terms of, uh, of uh, what you think 
that in the circumstances was the uh, best possible result. To most criminal defense lawyers, we believe that if it's going to be a, a period of incarceration, that the most lenient reasonable result is the best result. Because defense lawyers uh, think in terms of incarceration being not only a last resort, uh, but uh, minimizing the length of incarceration uh, is also uh, an objective that we want to want to achieve. Uh, because we don't believe in jails as being uh, anything other than punitive. So generally speaking, you want the best result. So I think part of that is um, uh, is achieving a result that you think uh, is the best result that could have been achieved uh, in the circumstances of the case. It doesn't necessarily mean winning. Uh, it means uh, succeeding uh, in, in, a, in a relative sense. Um, I think that um, um, some of my best days has when, been when, when uh, uh, my clients have expressed their appreciation. Um, and uh, they, uh, have, uh, they, they do believe that um, whatever could have been done was done. Uh, one of, uh, you know, I've had uh, almost 45 years of, uh, in the practice of law. One of my most grateful clients, and one of the very few clients with whom I developed a lifelong friendship, uh, and still remains a very close and dear friend, uh, is Alan Eagleson. Uh, and uh, I presided over one of the very few cross-border resolutions that's ever been achieved uh, between Canada and the United States. And uh, the late Jeremiah O'Sullivan was his lawyer in Boston, but with whom I worked closely on the Boston end of the resolution, uh, and then came to Canada to, to receive a short sentence of incarceration from uh, Justice uh, Lesage, Chief Justice Lesage at the mm -hmm. time, uh, and that was a long time ago. Al's now uh, 85 years old. Uh, he was 65 when, when most of this occurred, uh, and uh, uh, I was by his friends and close associates, and some of whom uh, are still friends and close associates, and, uh, and they are truly titans of the law and titans of, of, of uh, Politics Canada. Uh, I rem remember as if it was yesterday, being in Boston, about to enter a Boston courtroom the next morning, and Al passed me the phone, and he said, someone wants to talk to you. And it was uh, Justice Esty, former Chief Justice of Ontario, then just recently retired from the Supreme Court of Canada, telling me not to do it, that he was innocent, that it was wrong for me to preside over guilty plea in Boston and in Toronto for an innocent person uh, who he knew to be a person of total integrity. Uh, that puts the pressure on you a little bit. Absolutely. I thought my career was almost wow. over when, yeah. that, when that took place. And yet, uh, and there were all, there were many people at the time who, who, uh, who did that. Yet, in this objective of this, there isn't a time, and I see Alan four, five, six times a year, there isn't a time when he doesn't express to everybody around him how grateful he is to what I was able to accomplish for him. He was able to lead his life. He was able to carry on with his life and accomplish more in his life than he otherwise would have been able to. Because when he was 65, he walked into my office and said, okay, how much money is this going to cost and how many years is it going to take if we go right through each of these processes in Canada and the United States? Mm -hmm. I said, forget me for a moment. You're going to have $2 million of fees in the United States. I'm obviously going to add to that burden, but not quite uh, as much as the American lawyers will, will have. And I think it'll take 
seven or eight years. It was his 65th birthday. He said, I don't have that much money and I don't have that much time. Resolve it. Right? And he appreciated the resolution and does to this day. So I think that that is one of the, one of the great, um, uh, in my mind, uh, one of the great compliments you can receive is, is a client who uh, believes that what was done was the best that could have been done. So in contrast to that, as defense lawyers, we all have terrible days as no well. Question. And, and something, some of those days never go away. There's, you know, I call them the ghosts of litigation that sometimes hard to sleep at night. What advice do you give to younger lawyers who are trying to toughen up their skin or try and put things like that past them where perhaps a a judge suggests that they are incompetent or, um, they get a verdict that they feel was just totally wrong. Um, what tricks have you learned over the years to try and put that past you and move on? Well, I'm, I'm not sure there are tricks, <laughs> right. but, but what what there are, I mean, is um, yeah, there are reality checks. I think I don't know what number I'd place on this, but are there in the course of these last forty five years are there fifty cases that I thought uh, should have resulted in in a successful result that were unsuccessful? Of course, um, maybe more than fifty. Uh, difficult to know. Hopefully, there were as many. Uh, successes that <laughs> ought not to have been, or you know, factually were surprising victories, uh, and that to some extent balances it. Uh, those are obviously very, very bad days when when you don't achieve success. There are, are there, you know, you try your best, as you've said a moment ago, you try your best not to think in terms of is this person um, uh, guilty or innocent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not our role uh, to determine guilt or innocence. Although three times in my career. Three times, uh, and I remember the, the words so clearly. Three times, uh, judges have actually said uh, to uh, to simply find the accused not guilty would be to damn with faint praise, is what uh, Justice Bonato said in the Blood case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they're they're really accused being found innocent. Uh, Pat German, in one of her last cases as a judge, uh, found a client of mine innocent and used the words. Innocent. So those are, are particularly good days, right? But when the uh, antithesis occurs, uh, you have to realize that, that this is a process uh, that uh, you hopefully uh, have uh, contributed your best. If you see a flaw in what you did, if you said, I missed that, I think that what we have to do is we have to own up to what we've missed uh, and immediately say to... Uh, you know, immediately retain appellate counsel or immediately discuss it with your colleagues and say, you know, I, I think I missed this. I think this was, was something that ought to have been advanced. Some of them may turn to you and say, uh, that's totally understandable. It has nothing to do with being ineffective. It's making a decision and you have to make a decision and, and that's it. And you have to live with the decisions we make. But sometimes if in fact we've missed something, and I can tell you I've missed many things in the course of my career, and sometimes it has an adverse repercussion. What we have to do is pass it along uh, and uh, and accept the fact that we're all human and we're all uh, vulnerable to mistakes. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of courage to do that, though. Well, it has to be. Have to remember, we're we're not in it for us. We're in it for an accused uh, who is going to suffer criminal and penal consequences. So you mentioned uh, the Eagleson case, and I use that as an example of one that's very high profile. 
and you deal with almost all of your cases at this point are our profile in some sense or another. So in dealing with the media, this is something a lot of younger lawyers don't have any familiarity with. And then all of a sudden one day they wake up and they're representing someone with, you know, 15 cameras outside. What advice do you give those young lawyers? It's a very, it, 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 you know, the same way I said that the art of cross-examination is a learned skill. I made many mistakes early in my career relating to how you deal with the media. And I learned by almost being brutalized by the press on occasion. Uh, I'm glad that it's so long ago people don't remember or there aren't enough people around who remember some of those blatant mistakes I made. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, uh, uh, tomorrow night I'm flying up to Thunder Bay. Uh, I'm acting for Mayor Hobbs. Uh, and the judgment on the preliminary hearing is uh, he's conceded committal on the extortion charge, but contested committal on an obstruct justice um, uh, charge. And regardless of outcome, I, I wanted to do it by, and we could have done it by video, but Mayor Hobbs wanted me up there because there's going to be press and he wanted somebody to respond. So I'm going to face that problem on Thursday morning in Thunder Bay. Uh, I think that you have to uh, make sure you do a couple of things. has to be respectful to the system, has to be respectful to the judgment and the judge who uh, uh, provided the decision. Uh, it perhaps uh, can attempt to minimize uh, an adverse decision uh, and maximize uh, the effect of, of, uh, uh, of a positive decision. Let me take the example. If he's committed for trial on the obstruct, uh, then you very, very briefly say uh, that uh, uh, having regard to the very low standard uh, to uh, achieve at this stage at a preliminary hearing, it is not surprising that the, uh, uh, that the preliminary hearing judge uh, committed for trial and the outcome will, you know, we wait trial and we look forward to, the, to, uh, to testing credibility uh, at trial because uh, the truthfulness of the accusations uh, is not part of the preliminary hearing. If you win it, mm -hmm. then you say just the antithesis. Having regard to the fact that there was such a low standard, the fact that, that he is discharged at the preliminary hearing on this, uh, on the charge of obstruct justice, demonstrates that the charge ought never to have been brought. Mm -hmm. right? And so you try to, to uh, play whatever the result is in a way most favorable to the accused. You've got, I was a little bit too long there explaining it. I'd probably cut that down because the other thing you learn is don't give the press an opportunity to edit you. Right. <laughs> you want your, you want your sentences to be very, very tight uh, because if they can edit you, they will. Uh, and uh, you want to make sure that you can convey your message in a way that's brief, compact, uh, but uh, again, is, uh, is most favorable to the accused. That is something uh, that uh, do I, generally speaking, by the way, I only will respond to questions at landmark moments, generally. There are exceptions to it where the press is just all over it and, you know, is going to uh, be too intrusive. But generally speaking, you know, uh, I don't like no comment. You know, I think that what you can say is, uh, you know, uh, the charges have just been brought. Uh, you know, we're just receiving disclosure. It's premature to discuss the matter. Okay, right. Uh, that's an acceptable, uh, I think, approach to no comment. So you have to translate no comment into why you're not commenting, as opposed to no comment. 
uh, I think that that's much more, or at least it communicates a little message and explains why you're not uh, going to comment. Well, it's very clear. Uh, anyway, you look at this from what you're describing is you plan this. This isn't something where you walk out to a camera and wing it. You never wing it. You should never. Our job is not to wing it. <laughs> right. right. Our, 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 our job, you know, uh, um, you know, I was thinking about sort of your questions or your preparatory questions about uh, about uh, work ethic i i looked i knew that there was a churchill i love churchill <laughs> and I, I knew there was a, a churchillian uh, a quote uh, he said continuous effort not strength or, or intelligence is the key to unlocking our potential continuous effort is what it's all about it's got to be uh, preparation and work ethic yeah not at any stage winging at it. At any stage. You know, when someone asked, are you slowing down? I said, I am already, I'm, I've decided I'm slowing down. They said, really? I said, yeah, this year I decided that my hourly work week would not exceed my age. <laughs> so uh, they said, but that's got a problem because now next year it's going to go <laughs> right, up. <laughs> right, right. It keeps going up. Well, you know, for someone like you, obviously loves your work, Um I'm sure that you take all that with a blessing. So let me ask you in closing this interview, uh, I'll ask you one question. Um, If there was a Supreme Court of Canada case that you had the ability to overturn um, tomorrow, what would you say has had the most negative impact on criminal law and what you do? I think we've revisited some of those cases that I felt very strongly about, both in criminal law and in social policy. And we have over the years come of age on some of those issues. Uh, so uh, dying with dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the decision, the initial decision, I thought was fundamentally immoral and wrong. Uh, but we revisited it now, and we've uh, um, and current standards have, have changed uh, our public attitudes and our, our law has uh, been responsive to uh, the changes in our society. So I, I think that there, there are laws which um, have to be addressed. I think that um, I will, and I hope this doesn't sound political, I don't mean to be political, but we, we experienced a decade uh, of uh, draconian measures in the criminal law. And that decade was a very bleak period for us. And I think that, that uh, it be, I think, that it was a more conservative posture than uh, than the fundamental majority uh, belief in our country reflects. So I think as fast as we can overturn some of the criminal law legislation of the last decade in terms of minimum punishments, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what I think draconian sentencing was all about, uh, in terms of, um, of believing that... Um, uh, stricter, simply stricter enforcement, um, and uh, and higher sentencing, where the cure to crime in this country is just misplaced and is wrong. So I think that anything that upheld those principles uh, is, has got to be addressed uh, and addressed uh, uh, hopefully uh, in the in, in the coming years. Uh, and I think it will be. I think that there is the the ebb and flow and things just. Uh, get out of whack sometimes and we have to wait for uh, the timing of things to to uh, change well it seems that it may be going that way but you know what i i 
misstated. I want to ask you one more question. Okay. Okay, and this will be the last one, I promise. Hopefully it's easier than the last question. (laughs) I think it'll certainly be more meaningful. Um, If you had one more nine-to-five day with your brother, leaving family aside, because I know everyone would rather spend it with their family, but one more nine-to-five day with your brother, what would that be? Well, we didn't have a nine-to-five day. Ever, <laughs> ever. Well, one more work day uh, left with your brother. Day, yeah, sure. You know, nine-to-five. Yeah, 20 I mean, hours. You know, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, what would that day be? I, I think that, um, I don't think it would be a work day, actually. Yeah. I think it would be a, a, a day of nostalgia, a day of reminiscing, a day of our family's uh, lives, a day of, of uh, being proud of the blessings we've enjoyed. Uh, as people. I think that uh, Eddie has uh, uh, two uh, wonderful daughters and, and three grandchildren. I have an s- incredible son, an incredible daughter, and they're both married to fabulous people who I love dearly. And we now have one grandchild and with two more on the way. And so I think that I think that we would probably want uh, a family moment together rather than work moment. We had we we had a, a lifetime of, of of work. If I only had one day left with Eddie, I think we'd want it to be a more personal reflection upon uh, where we were, where we got to. Mr. Greenspan, I can't thank you enough. I know our guests uh, absolutely love this episode. So um, thank you for having us. Thank you. Appreciate being the opportunity to be here.